Hi, I'm Sishle, a second year engineering and finance student, and I'll be doing the Bible reading. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me, like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and pearls of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each one of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders sat down before him who sits on the throne and worships him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and by, all, by your will they were created and have being. Thank you, Sinclair. My name's Tim. If we haven't met, it's great to be here with you. You'll find an outline for the talk in the centre of your handout uh, on the opposite uh, of where the passage is printed. Just before we do this, I want to give you a bit of a taster of a quip, just in case you're thinking of coming. So thinking about the sovereignty of God, here's a question for you. When bad things happen in the world, like coronaviruses, how are we to understand it? There's five options there. I want you to just look through them. Pick the one that you think might be right. Okay. Now, I want you to, just with the person next to you or behind you or something, just share your answer and why you think the others aren't right. Quick, have a chat. Boy, I love the level of noise. It's fantastic. But I will quieten you down. 
Well, I hope that's given you a taste of some of the sorts of questions that are actually real and they, they matter. Your answer to that question will affect your life in significant ways, as I hope you realise. So that's a taste of what we do in Equip. If you're thinking of coming uh, tomorrow, 1 o'clock, or Wednesday, uh, Monday, 4 o'clock, um, it's not too late to join us. Okay, let's look at Revelation chapters 4 and 5. What do you imagine heaven is like? Do you imagine clouds and uh, dispirited bodies with harps? Which sounds sort of fairly boring, doesn't it? Or maybe, if you're like Michelangelo, it's more like this. Heaven is the greatest relief because you've been dragged out of hell. Somehow, you've escaped by the skin of your teeth in order to live on clouds for a little while. One church's catechism says it's this. Heaven is the ultimate end and fulfilment of the deepest human longings. The state of supreme definitive happiness. That is, whatever you long for, heaven is where you get that in spades forever. Now, I guess that fits with the Muslim idea that Muslim martyrs uh, enjoy the company of 72 virgins forever. Well, I'm not quite sure that's heaven for the virgins. For me, it makes me think of playing soccer. The World Cup finals. The World Cup final. Australia playing England. It's one all with two minutes to go. I get the ball ten yards outside the penalty area and I let fly straight into the top right-hand corner. We win! We win! Forever. I'm just kicking goals forever and ever and ever. Some scoff. There's no heaven, there's no hell. All the, the only reality is this material world. Atoms and chemicals and planets and galaxies and just the empirical world we can measure and weigh. But is this all there is? I, I don't think so. Don't you believe in truth and justice and love and courage and other such incredibly valuable things, but they're not, not material. And God, not material, but spirit. You can't see, but real. In Revelation chapter 4, the Apostle John in the first century, probably about 90 AD, is shown a reality that we normally can't see. The door to heaven is opened in chapter 4, verse 1. And he sees what is happening in heaven. Now, heaven's not somewhere in the sky. It's not a planet on the other side of Mars. It's the unseen spiritual reality that coexists with this material reality. And we're told he's shown what must take place. Now, there's a couple of different ways you can show people what must take place. So I can say, tomorrow the sun's going to be shining. A cool breeze will be blowing. You'll be able to sit out in the sun and enjoy the weather. So I can tell you by telling you, describing what is going to happen. But there's another way of showing you what must happen. Sickly, I wonder if you could come and just stand out the front here. You willing to? Trust me. <laughs> and close your eyes. I'm going to show you what must soon happen. <laughs> you know what's going to happen, don't you? <laughs> you know exactly what's going to happen. Sickly, open your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> See, I can show you what's going to happen by showing you what is true now, what the reality at the present time is, and that is what is shown to John, what is true now. And what does he see? Well, in verse 2, at once I was in the spirit, and then before me was a throne in heaven. 
A throne is mentioned, the throne is mentioned 17 times in 25 verses. It tells you immediately this is not a democracy. This is a monarchy. The democracy is the worst form of government we've got. Democracy is based on the assumption that you trust no one. You spread power as widely as you can. You have elections every three or four years, so if you don't like this person, you don't trust them, you can kick them out and have somebody else for a maximum of three or four years. Very inefficient. But heaven, the universe, is not a democracy. It's a kingdom. There's somebody sitting on the throne. The throne is occupied. But John doesn't describe the person on the throne except to say he had the appearance of a bit like Jasper and, uh, uh, and Ruby. I haven't got a clue what that means. Instead, he describes the context of the throne, the things surrounding the throne. It's sort of like walking into an office. And when you look at the office, you see the enormous Jarrah desk inlaid with leather. And behind the desk is this view of the Swan River uninterrupted. And you know you're in the office of somebody very important and very impressive. Well, that's what John sees. He sees a rainbow, except it's sort of all green. He sees 24 thrones surrounding the centre throne, which are occupied by people who look like kings. They're impressive. There's thunder and lightning, which in that culture was the most powerful natural force you ever experienced. There are seven lamps and there's a sea of glass. Now, I'm not quite sure how to interpret all those details, but what it's describing is crystal clear, isn't it? This is the throne room of God himself the king of the universe, in all his splendour and glory and majesty and might and dignity and fame and brilliance. And I could keep using adjectives, but they don't paint the picture like John paints the picture. It's a much better way to do it, isn't it? And then John's eyes light on four living creatures. In the centre around the throne, verse 6, there were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and in the back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face of a man, the fourth like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, were covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. What are these four creatures, bizarre things that they look like? Well, we've got to read this with Old Testament eyes, which is a bit difficult if we don't know the Old Testament. But in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel sees a sort of chariot with God riding on it, and at each of the four wheels there's four creatures. And these four creatures each have four faces facing different ways. The face of an eagle and an ox and a lion and a human. It's sort of like this but different. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah in the temple sees the glory of God with uh, angels around him. Cherubim. And the cherubim have got six wings just like these ones. But they don't have faces. It's sort of like that but different. So who are they? Well, we know at that time... The eagle was thought of as being the greatest of the birds. The ox was the greatest of the domestic animals. The lion, the, the king of the jungle, and humans above all. They represent all animate creation. That's who they are, but what they're doing is what really matters. Verse 8, day and night they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. They never stop declaring God's uniqueness. God, you are unique. You're different to everything else three times over. And God's power, he's not just mighty, he's almighty. And God's permanence, he was, he didn't have a beginning. He is now and he is to come and won't have an end. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks of the year, 
This is what they say. They never stop. They never have a coffee break. They never go on holidays. This is what their life is about. Back in chapter four, uh, verse 4, we're introduced to 24 elders. They're sitting on thrones around the central throne and they rule in some sort of way. But who are they? Well, 24, what, what do you think 24 might represent? Have a guess. Do you know anything about the rest of this book and other parts of the Bible? A hint, 24 is 12 plus 12. I know that's banal, but it's true. But it will give you a clue. In Revelation 21, when John sees the new Jerusalem descending from heaven, this gigantic cube-shaped thing that he sees, it has, 20, it has 12 gates that are the 12 um, patriarchs of Israel. And it has 12 foundation stones, which are the 12 apostles. These represent the Old and New Testament people of God all together in the number 24. But again, what they're doing is more important. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne, which is all the time, isn't it? That's 24-7. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne. As whenever the, the, the four creatures say, you are worthy, what do they do? They fall on their faces, they cast their crowns down. Now, it's a bit hard to imagine how they keep doing that day after day, hour after hour. Do they pick their crown back up and put it on their head and then throw it down? And, but that's not the point. The point is that they too, like the four living creatures, have a purpose in life. It is to honour the one who sits on the throne, to worship him. Because, verse 11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. The creator is worthy of everything that is worth having. He deserves it because, second half of verse 11, you created all things. By your will they were created and have their being. See, it's right that glory and honour, thanks and power go to God because he designed and manufactured this whole universe. He even created all the stuff it was made from and made with. And I reckon he did a pretty brilliant job as well. And because he made it, he owns it all. It owes its existence to him. It only exists because he willed it and continues to will it. You and I only exist because he willed it and continues to exist. And we continue to exist because he wills it. You and I are manufactured items. And we start to see then that our lives have purpose and meaning. The four living creatures, the 24 elders, their lives have a purpose and meaning. They have a direction. They're not aimlessly drifting about, wondering, wondering what their lives are for. No, they know. It comes from being created. See, if you're created, then there is a purpose to your existence. You are created for a purpose. All manufactured items are like that. But if you're an accident, you have no purpose. So here's this lectern. It's a particular shape made out of nice wood veneer. I think it's veneer. And, and its shape and all its design is because it has a purpose. I don't look at that and say, oh, why on earth is this here? I can look and see, but if I'm walking through the, the bush and I come across just a random collection of stones scattered around, just an accidental uh, arrangement, I don't ask, why is this here? Why is it like this? It, it just is, isn't it? If there is no God, if there is no creator, if all there is is matter and energy, 
that over time has accidentally, randomly arranged itself in different configurations as water or rocks or cockroaches or you, if we're all just a product of time and chance, then we're not meant to be here. There's no purpose to our lives. We're just here because we're here, because we're here, because we're here, and I could go on forever, couldn't I? Accidents can't have any meaning or purpose or value. Why are you here? Well, 42 is as good as answer as any other at that point. In fact, to ask the question, why am I here, just shows that my brain is malfunctioning. It's asking a question that doesn't make sense if I'm only an accident. Now, people try to invent meaning and purpose. Here's an example taken from a website. I think that the real meaning of life is to look for the meaning of life. Profound. <laughs> Stupid. Longer version. Meaning of life, all life exists to recreate itself. Blast an island to dust with a volcano, a few years stuff starts to grow. Why? Because it must. To reproduce. That's why we're here. We eat so we're strong enough to have sex. All else is justification. That sounds like an engineering student, doesn't it? <laughs> we try and invent it, but if we're just an accident, there's nothing to invent. In fact, if we're just an accident, there's not just no meaning, there's no morality. You can't have an ought, all you've got is is. And there can't be any knowledge, because knowledge depends on right thinking. But if my brain is just the, the, uh, the end product of an accidental process, there's no reason to trust my brain at all. In fact, if Darwinian evolution is all there is, we can't know it. But I presume your whole person, every cell in your body screams out, I, I'm not just an accident. And you're right. Every cell is stamped with, made by God. You're a manufactured item, like I am. You do have value and meaning, like this lectern does. Your life has a purpose. There's an answer to the question, why am I here? But, if I'm a manufactured item, who determines my purpose? Me? No. This lectern doesn't determine its own purpose. No, the, the maker determines its purpose. I think it's true that the average Aussie wants purpose and meaning, as if they're made, but they want to decide for themselves what their purpose and meaning is, as if they made themselves. But you can't have it both ways. That's fantasy world. Now, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, they know, they're clear on their purpose. And just as we get to the dizzying heights of God the Creator sitting on the throne, of our lives having meaning and purpose and value, John notices a scroll. Chapter 5, verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now, what is this scroll? Well, there's a background in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel is told to, 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 to roll up this scroll which has written on it the plans and purposes of God till the end times, to seal it. These are God's plans and purposes for the universe, God's will. And the question is asked, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who is worthy to be the executor of God's will, to put God's plans into effect, to run the world? And it's the good question, it's the right question, isn't it? It's not who's got the power to do it, who's got the most military might. It's who's worthy. Who would you trust with that sort of power? ScoMo? Donald Trump? Nat Fife? Tim Thorburn, 
please don't. Don't trust me with that sort of power. I'm not worthy. Thank you for the word of testimony, Rosemary. Verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. So John wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. God's purposes won't come to fruition. But, verse 5, then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the Jewish Messiah that God had promised for long generations, who's a lion, who's conquered. He's a strong, regal lion, like Mephusa in The Lion King. Looks out over all that he's conquered. Whenever he roars, the animals just quake in fear because he's the king of the jungle. And John looks to see this lion. Verse 6, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures. A, a lamb. You couldn't get anything more different to a lion, could you? What are lambs like? It's not even a, a ram. It's just a, a lamb, a docile, meek lamb, as scary as a teddy bear. Now, when sporting teams try to have an image, a mascot for who they are, what sort of animals do they pick? Lions and tigers and eagles and dockers. Dockers? <laughs> I don't know what that means. Because <laughs> you can go and you can say, come on the lions, and it sort of makes sense because lions are, are aggressive and strong. Can you imagine going to the footy and say, come on the lambs? <laughs> Even worse, come on the butchered lambs. <laughs> That's our hero. And you know who this is, don't you? The lion who's a lamb. The lion who was slain. Who is a lamb butchered like he's been to the abattoir, but he's now alive again, still with his scar. It's still there, like his, his neck has been chopped off, but he's healed, he's, he's alive, standing. This is Jesus, isn't it? The Jesus who lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago, who was crucified in shame and pain and rose again, still with his scars. And he takes the scroll the lamb with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. He takes the scroll to open God's plans and purposes. And the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down and worship the lamb. Hold on a minute. They worship the creator sitting on the throne 24-7, 52 weeks of the year. Because God alone is to be worshipped, but now they've started to worship the Lamb. This must be blasphemy. In chapter 19, John is so impressed by an angel, he starts to fall down before the angel, and the angel says, no, stop. You must worship God alone. And they all sing this new song about the Lamb, and it's his death that they're stoked about. His worthiness to take the scroll is in his death. His scar is his glory. By his death, he purchased us for God. 
But doesn't God own us already? If he created us, yes, he does own us by creation. But we didn't want to be owned. In a crazy bid for freedom, we sold ourselves into slavery under the power of sin and evil, under the power of Satan and death and condemnation. And what did God do? What did the lamb do? Did he say, well, you can go to hell? You chose it, you deserve it? No. He came and died for us. He purchased our freedom and allegiance. He bought us. We're owned twice over by creation, by redemption. He bought us to serve God, as we should by rights. But it's so much better than that because we reign with him. Not subservience, but the privilege of partnering God in his rule over everything. No wonder they compose a new song about the Lamb. In verse 11, it widens. I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, ten thousand upon ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they're saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. A vast ocean of voices saying, Worthy is the Lamb to receive everything worth having, everything that is God's. If this is blasphemy, it's blasphemy on a grand grand scale. But isn't the one on the throne a bit miffed by this? Verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and, uh, and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, true. And the elders fell down and worshipped. There's not enough for all in heaven to sing to them. Every creature, angel, human, mammal, reptile, insect, tree, sings to the creator and to the lamb that they both deserve praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. And it won't stop, never. It mustn't stop, ever. And if you know God, your creator, and if you know Jesus, the lamb who was slain for you, You'll join this song, won't you? Forever and ever. Well, we've just been to heaven. We've seen a bigger reality than we'll normally see in our physics lab or our psych lecture. But just as real as the things we talk about there. It's true now, God the creator sits on the throne. Jesus the lamb is with him in the centre. This is the centre of reality. This is the centre of the universe. And it answers some of our questions. Who's in control? You look around the world, it so often looks like no one's in control. Every now and then someone like a Hitler puts his head up and says, I want to take control of everything, but none of them ever succeed. And so it seems like we live in a world that's pretty random and unpredictable. Coronavirus suddenly hits, we don't know where it comes from. Market forces take over and our stocks and shares, your stocks and shares, you've got them, haven't you? Suddenly crash. We think of it just as bad luck, as if no one's in control. But this tells us that's not the reality. God the creator is on the throne of his universe. The throne's not empty, it's not contested. Things are not out of control. They're not unpredictable. Because if they're unpredictable, life gets pretty anxious, doesn't it? If I don't know that someone's in control, then I don't know what will happen. It could be anything. And Jesus has taken the scroll... He's taken the destiny of the universe, the destiny of our lives, into his hands. And I'll tell you what, there's no one I'd trust more with that role. He gave his life for me and for you. 
This is not a meaningless, chaotic mess. It, now, if that's hard to reconcile with your experience of life, come back next week as Jesus starts to break the seals and open the scrolls. And we also know what must happen. Remember the water bottle? If we see the lamb is at the centre of the throne, then he must one day subdue all who usurp and resist his rule. He must rescue his loyal people and share his kingdom with them. That's where the future of history is going. No matter what happens in the meantime, pandemics and ingrown toenails and passing brilliantly or failing miserably, no matter what happens, that's where history is headed. It will happen. And it tells us what life is about. See, by seeing into heaven now the reality there, we get a true picture of life. What is your picture of the afterlife? Is it scoring winning goals? Is it a reunion with your friends? Is it an idyllic, peaceful, chilled-out rest? Do you see what's wrong with all those? They're all so me-centred. It's all about me. But when John sees into heaven, it's not centred on me. It all centres on the Creator and the Lamb. What will we do for all eternity? Well, we'll be like the 24 elders and the seven living creatures, won't we? And all the angels who are there and, and the whole animate creation, worshipping, honouring, praising and thanking God and the Lamb. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year without ceasing. Any alternative, any other way puts me back at the centre. It, it's blasphemy. Now, am I saying that we have some sort of obligation to God? Yes, absolutely. Just like I presume you feel some sort of obligation to your parents. No, you're here because your parents did something and made you. You're here because your parents have provided for you. They changed your nappies. They, they give you food. They give you a place to live. At least I hope your parents have done that for you. If not, it's, it's quite sad. You've missed something really important and valuable in life, haven't you? Do you feel some obligation to your parents? I hope so. Well, how much more God? To feel no obligation, to have no obligation is, is wrong, isn't it? To ignore God is evil. God knits you together in your mother's womb. He provides your life, your food, the air you breathe. He is worthy, isn't he? And the lamb gave his life. He purchased your freedom from self-inflicted disaster. Now imagine you're down at Cottesloe and somebody rescues you from drowning. I presume you'll feel some sense of gratitude to the person, won't you? They are worthy. He is worthy. But will it be enjoyable? You bet. Can you imagine face to face with the God who designed you, who knit you together, who made your eyes and your ears and your brain and your toes and has sustained every second of your life? Do you think you'll resent saying thank you? It's hard to imagine, isn't it? And can you imagine standing there touching the scar of Jesus, remembering that he gave that, he, he suffered that for me, and think, oh, this is just about playing soccer. No, there'll be no greater joy than joining in and saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with, you, with your blood you purchased people for God. <laughs> I'm looking forward to being able to say that. But you might be thinking, but Tim, I, I know I should, but I just don't like this. If you don't like it, can I suggest maybe you're not converted yet? Something significant has not happened. 
Somehow you might believe in God as your creator, but it hasn't transferred into the way that you think and live, the way you understand yourself. If you're still living for yourself as if you're the centre of the universe, as if you brought your own existence into reality. Now, there's a, there's a Copernican revolution that has to happen for all of us. Do you know about Copernicus? I know most of us don't do any science, history and philosophy these days, but up until 1514, when Copernicus uh, published a thesis, most people in the world believed that the Earth was at the centre of the solar system and the sun and everything else revolved around the Earth. It was a very cosy thing to believe because that made me important because I'm at the centre of the universe. Copernicus looked at the figures again and said, actually, it makes a lot more sense if the sun is at the centre of the solar system and the Earth goes around the sun. Now, that was rejected by lots of people until Galileo came along and proved that it was right, mathematically. Because it was sort of an insult. Because I like to think it's all about me and I am at the centre and, and we're at the centre. But I'm not. No, the Son of God is at the centre. God the Creator is at the centre. And to be a Christian is to go through this revolution where I realise that that's true and I, and I come to believe it and embrace it and rejoice in it. That's sort of what it means to be converted. So what about now? Well, I presume if this is true, then now is no different. It's the same reality, isn't it? What's the purpose of my life and your life? Well, as one catechism puts it, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And can I say there is nothing more worth doing in life than that. I'm not worth living for. You aren't either. But the one on the throne and the lamb, they are worth living for. And so how do I live life now? By worshipping God and the lamb in everything that I do. Not just for 30 minutes on Sunday morning if I happen to get there in time. But in my study and in my leisure, with my money and with my time. In my relationships and in every aspect of life. So the question this passage raises for you and for me is, has that revolution happened? Who's at the centre of your universe? Is it God, your creator, and the lamb who died for you? Or is it still you? Thank you.